Hi, everyone, and welcome to this podcast on a subject that I guess has been uh, close to my heart in a former life. That is the ADA credentialing process. My name's Jan Orford, and I'll be your host today. My guests are Liz Oberstella and Rachel Freeman. Liz, Liz is a nurse practitioner and diabetes educator bar- based within the Murrumbidgee Local Health District in regional New South Wales. She's worked as a diabetes educator for over 21 years with a strong interest in using collaboration and co-design principles to meet the needs of people with diabetes. She's currently the chair of the ADEA Credentialing Committee and in the past has been involved in the Program Organising Committee for both national and state conferences. She's the co-chair of the Diabetes and Endocrine Network within the Agency for Clinical Innovation. Rachel is probably known to all of us, I guess, and is the current Professional Services and Education Manager at ADEA, and she oversees the credentialing program with the help of the credentialing officer and membership liaison team. Rachel's also a dietitian and credential diabetes educator, currently mentoring other CDEs through the credentialing process. In 2015, she completed her master's, undertaking a formal evaluation of the ADEA mentoring program. So hello, Rachel and Liz. How are you both today? Hi, Jan. Well, thank you. It's great to be chatting to you again today, especially on this subject, so close to what we do at ADA and one of um, our core business processes at uh, the association. Um, Afternoon, Jan. Yes, it is the afternoon. Thanks for allowing me to be involved in this conversation with Jan about um, um, the credentialing um, process that uh, we use within ADA. Thanks to you both. And as you mentioned, I'm going to be asking you about the credentialing process. Um, Obviously, many diabetes educators go to become credentialed through ADEA, and a part of this process is attaining the 1,000 practice hours in diabetes education, support and management of people both living with or at risk of developing diabetes. The majority of these hours, and I believe it's 60%, have to be within 12 months of applying I'm wondering if you could tell us more about that, Rachel, and if you could please explain the criteria for the practice hours. Thanks, Jen. Yes, I'll do my best to try and explain that. So one of the components is the 1,000 hours of practice in diabetes education. These hours are different from clinical placement that applicants might do through the university course, the graduate certificate. So in the university course, they do have a practical component But these 1,000 hours are in addition to that and outside of the graduate certificate. 60% or 600 hours in the past 12 months prior to applying for credentialing means the assessors will look at when the person submitted their credentialing application and then count back 12 months from that application date to ensure that 600 hours um, has been done in the prior 12 months. This is to check that the person's experience is contemporary and applicable to current practice. As we know, many change in diabetes education and management over a 12-month period, and we see that all the time from changes in medication, new medications coming out, um, technologies changing. So we, you know, we want to make sure that they're practicing current diabetes education. We know that some people find this a very onerous task, so collating those 1,000 hours and recording them. We encourage people to read the criteria and summarise their log at the end of each page as best they can so that the assessors who are looking at their application can easily see that the criteria has been met. 
Some applicants have provided printed pages of their appointment diaries, coded with referral and appointment reasons, and obviously de-identified so that they don't have any patient names on them, but to demonstrate the hours in diabetes education. Uh, this can give us pages and pages of information, which is fine, but that's why we ask for people to tally up their hours at the bottom of each of the pages so that the aren't spending a lot of time trying to add those 1,000 hours up, which can take a bit of time. Great. I think you've partly covered this, but can you tell us when you can begin accruing these hours and is there a specific way to track them? Yes, so the 1,000 hours can start to be accumulated once the applicant has started their graduate certificate so that they've enrolled in the course um, um, and so that they're practising those hours in accordance to what they're learning through the course. So the hours need to be accumulated within a four-year period from then the start of the graduate certificate. The main aim of this criteria is, like I said before, that the diabetes educator can demonstrate practical experience, their knowledge and skills that is current to both their credentialing application, but also contemporary to best practice. The person doesn't need to be working in a position that is titled diabetes educator or feel like they, they're working in a role that's solely diabetes education. The, they can count hours that they might may be providing diabetes education in their usual workplace. So they might be a generalist nurse or a nurse on a ward or as a dietitian or podiatrist or one of our other allied health members might be working in their private practice. But as long as they're uh, practicing diabetes education, talking to people with diabetes about their, their management um, and supporting that person in diabetes, they can count those hours. The person may also be working in a management role or in research or teaching. So as long as that role is diabetes related, they can count those hours as well. There are guidelines and templates on the ADA website that help to explain the criteria and set out exactly what the applicant needs to present in their application. Thank you for that. Um, is there any additional documentation or evidence needed, for example, a CV or a verification letter to support these practice hours? And Rachel, are there any resources or templates that applicants can use? And to Liz, I would say, ask, can you tell us if there's anything in particular that the assessors are looking for? Yeah, so I'll start again. It's Rachel. Um, so we do require a CV um, and also a verification letter that, all, that both demonstrate these practice hours that are provided in the log. So the CV of the applicant is just a brief bio of current and recent work, um, how the role of diabetes educator is part of their role, including their skills and experience, a brief overview of their professional experience and education and training. So basically just summarise the applicant's employment history, their past experience and credentials. And in their CV, we're looking for um, where they mention diabetes education as part of their role, and that should correlate with what they've provided in their 1,000 hours um, record. The verification letter is uh, from their employer or manager, um, or if they're in private practice, someone that can verify those hours for them. It needs to be on the template that we provide and on a... Um, company letterhead and signed by someone who can verify those hours in the 1,000 hours log. Uh, just um, to carry on from what Rachel said, 
as assessors, when we're looking at your application, um, when it comes in, we actually look at the pro the the whole application. We look at it as a whole, um, starting at the front from your CV. And as, as um, Rachel has said, this CV really needs to summarise um, your what you've done and your experience and your credentials because it is what leads into um, the, the whole process. Um, we then look through to your clinical hours. So how does your clinical hours reflect what's said on your CV and also your CPD claims? So we're looking for that linkage um, um, across all of the documents so that you know, you're able to demonstrate um, effectively that I'm working towards um, meeting the core competencies of a CDE. We're also looking, when we're looking for the assessing, we're looking at other, other aspects of it. And we'll go on to talk about that a little bit more, particularly around what, what to look for when you're putting in your continuing professional development claims and activities and your goal setting. And um, last of all, what we're looking for in your um, referee report. Thank you for that. The ADEA also requires a, a six-month mentoring process. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that and perhaps starting with you, Rachel? Sure. Thanks, Jan. So mentoring with a CDE who has been a CDE for 12 months or more is part of the credentialing program. The mentoring can go longer than six months, but there is just a requirement of uh, at least six months. And we do look for at least six hours. So we're expecting um, the mentor, the mentoring partnership to be, you know, an average of one hour of mentoring per month over at least six months. There is one criteria for credentialing in that the mentoring partnership should also be fairly recent. So when the applicant submits their credentialing application, the mentoring partnership end date should be no older than within that past 12 months from the application submission date. So if you're applying for credentialing tomorrow, your mentoring partnership should have an end date that is sometime within the last 12 months. There are online e-learning modules that both the mentor and the mentee need to complete at the start of their partnership. Um, the mentor doesn't have to do this every time they have a new mentoring partnership, but we do ask the mentor to complete that online learning module uh, once every three, three years. These modules are on the ADA learning management system, which is a different website to the main ADA website, and there are links from the main ADA webpage. A few questions we often get are about who can mentor who. So we have a membership that is multidisciplinary. We often hear that nurses think that they can only mentor other nurses, or dietitians should find a dietitian mentor. But we really strongly encourage mentoring across disciplines as both mentor and mentee can then take the opportunity to learn and grow and you know, find out how other health professionals practice with their diabetes education. So the partnership then becomes a reciprocal learning opportunity. And for our members who have been involved in a cross-discipline partnership, um, we hear really great feedback from that and how much they've learnt um, you know, about how the other person practices. You also don't need to be working with your mentor. So we often hear that people are looking for a mentor within their workplace um, and that they think that that's one of the requirements. So the partnership is not about supervision of practice. It's not the mentor signing off on the mentee's competence as a diabetes educator. 
We especially want to be able to see our rural and remote diabetes educators becoming credentialed and therefore use of technology to mentor remotely should be encouraged. This also provides opportunity to expand a person's clinical network. So you might be able to tap into a teaching hospital that has a pump clinic and you might be working out in a rural area. So it's really trying to expand your um, your contacts with people and being able to have a, a wider clinical network. Gaining mentoring and practice insights from people outside of your workplace can be really important. And I guess one last thing to mention is that our mentoring program is an all online also. So all of the templates and online forms are found on the ADEA website and mentees need to keep a mentoring activity log. So when they meet with their mentor, how long they meet for, um, just a really brief summary of what was discussed. And all of that is built into the ADEA website. I just want to support what Rachel said. And I just did a quick literature, literature review yesterday just to update you know some of the current thinking around men mentoring. One of the one of the nice things I found was um, a description of of mentoring, and they described it as the art and science of guiding another through the purposeful actions of inspiring, coaching, teaching, directing, and leading an individual into a new place that might of of learning. And it's a creative partnership based on trust and respect. I think that's a really important part of the mentoring process. It is a trust and respect um, and everyone should feel safe in um, their mentoring um, at all times. And they need, another important thing is it needs to be engaged and they need to be committed to the relationship because it is a nurturing relationship that might extend past the initial mentoring relationship to become a peer review process um, and a peer review support Thing and friendship, but ultimately the outcome is that the um, an experienced guide will provide another with direction and insight to assist in achieving your goals. And this is, as Rachel said, is often a two-way street. Thanks to you both for that. Um, CPD is required for both the initial credentialing application and for re-credentialing. How many credit points are needed firstly? And is there a certain time frame that these points need to be accrued within? Thanks, Dan. Um, so I guess the past 12 months is our lucky number today. So the CPD <laughs> points need to be current and um, the application does count them in the last 12 months. So if you submit your application again say tomorrow then your CPD um, points will be counted from that point and 12 months backwards. The applicant does need 20 CPD points and there are specific guidelines for this also on the ADA website. So the activities are listed um, where they sit in certain criteria and categories is also in those guidelines. We ask applicants to look at their role and scope of practice as a diabetes educator and their CPD points should reflect the role that they choose that best fits with for them. So, for example, if someone was working in research for the majority of their diabetes practice hours, we would expect that the majority of their CPD points would also be in that research field. Um, just going on from, from what you'll talk about, so as assessors, what we're looking for is how you how the applicants put in their claims. Um, often uh, we see when we're looking at an application that there's 
double up of their claims. They might put in that they've done a particular activity in, in one category, which is the first one, which is clinical, and then they'll put it into um, research, research or management. And what we what is assesses what we're looking at is that you may be able to do that, but you need to be able to think about um, how you might put your application in. For example, uh, particularly at this in this time when we're changing the way we do we we do our our um, education and support. Um, you might be involved in the development and review of the diabetes-related clinical pathways, but they incorporating now um, that you need to incorporate how you might use telehealth. So you might include that in category two. Um, so as part of the developing of your pathways, you might then say, okay, well, I need to do a little bit more um, work on understanding how telehealth has had telemedicine works, how it fits into our pathways. So you might do some online learning, um, some of the various modules that are available and that, that then for becomes in category one. And as a consequence is once you've done all this online learning, you then have developed the pathway. An important part of our activity these days is to actually do a quality review to look at the success of the change in practice. And you may do this through a qualitative survey, both the person with diabetes that providing the telehealth to and also the staff and how they go to it. So they're all related, but the claims and evidence are all different. Um, so what you would need to submit is evidence of working in, uh, involvement in working party for category two, evidence of completing your online study for category one, and evidence that you've evaluated the introduction of the pathway into category three. So you're not doubling up, but you're actually using um, one area where you've identified there's a problem and that might link back to you also wanting to, as part of your goals, learning about um, how to utilise the technology to support your people with diabetes. So we're not doubling up, but you're actually providing quite an extensive evaluation of, of an issue you've developed and understood. Thank you both for that. I was wondering if I could ask you both then what kind of proof is required to show someone has completed the CPD? Yeah, thanks, Jen. Um, again, the guidelines that we have on the ADA website spell out quite specifically actually what kind of evidence or proof you need for your um, CPD activities. The application portal, so where you put your credentialing application in online is set up in such a way that it won't let you progress your application if the evidence is not attached to each CPD claim. So every activity that you have in your portfolio needs to have some sort of evidence attached to it. A lot of activities require certificate of attendance or registration verification. So those are sorts of activities like conferences or workshops that you might have attended or webinars that you might have listened to online. Activities require a one-page summary, for example. So the, the person might have done a literature review. So to show that they've read the articles and understood the articles, we ask them just to submit a one-page summary of what they found in the literature. Another example, like Liz was just mentioning, of a quality improvement activity, we would ask for uh, the project plan. Um, so that would include the aims, the methods, the results and the outcomes um, and the implementation of that quality improvement activity. Again, just in a one-page summary, so just a really brief description of each of those sorts of things. I'll let Liz talk about what the assessors look for um, when looking at those, that evidence. 
So when we're looking for the evidence that you might submit, we need to see that it's current, that it clearly articulates what you're claiming for. So for example, an email that you've been to a meeting really doesn't demonstrate um, uh, particularly if you're looking at the quality improvement program, just an email saying that you've attended a, a meeting isn't really evidence of um, that you're involved, that you've developed the quality improvement and how you've assessed it. Also, when you're looking at if you've read an article, we, we as uh, Rachel has said, it's a good things to actually do a literature review and reflect back on how that has been implemented into your practice. What has made it change? Um, I think that's really important that when you're putting in, in um, evidence is how it reflected back on what your original goals might have been and how it is implemented and, and helped change or supplemented how you actually practice. And so all the assessors look on the look for the same thing. We do talk to each other about it. And we really encourage you to ensure that your evidence that you put in supports your claim. It, it's a good thing, not just that you've provided a, 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 a good description and the description doesn't need to be extensive. You do, you're, the extensive part of it comes in your description. So really take time to look at what it looks like. And also when you're putting your application in, um, look at you look at using your mentor as part of the mentoring process to review your claims and how you've put them in. The mentor has been there and done that, has been through the whole credentialing process and, and should have a very good overview of what are the minimum requirements there. Use those that are around you when you're putting things together. It really is wonderful when we see, um, you know, to go through an application and it's tick, 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 tick the whole way through. Um, and kudos to you when you do that. Thanks, Jan. Thanks, Liz. Um, and I guess the final part of the application then is a referee's report. And I was wondering if you could please, both of you, tell us what this entails from your perspective. Thanks, Jen. Yeah, I can talk about the practical aspect, I, I guess. And as you said, it is the last aspect of a person's credentialing application. So it is hope that it's kind of just a nice summary of everything that they've just shown us through the rest of the application. So there is a template for the report and it can be completed by a person um, in any type of senior role, I guess, to the applicant that has seen the applicant's work as a diabetes educator or at least been able to talk to the, the applicant about their diabetes education practice. It doesn't have to be another CDE. So um, we recognise that people don't always work with other CDEs other people may be uh, GPs or endocrinologists or any other senior member of the diabetes care team that can complete the referee report. The referee needs to have a thorough understanding of the national competencies for credential diabetes educators. And again, that um, document sits on our ADA website. And the referee needs to then reflect on how the applicant meets those competencies. So Liz, can you comment in terms of what the assessors are looking for in this in this area? As Rachel has said, the referee report is a summary of um, the person's review 
view of, of how you're meeting your um, clinical competencies. So the competencies that um, as, a, as a credential diabetes educator, we need to meet. Um, and the what we're looking for in a referee um, is an independent view of the applicant's ability. So they've actually, you've had a chat to them, they've seen how you work. The comments on it need to be sufficiently detailed to be helpful. So just one or two lines doesn't really reflect and um, show how they've been able to discuss with you how you're meeting the, the uh, core competencies. It also needs to reflect the, your, the applicant's capabilities, um, again, against the core competencies, and also reflect back through the CV and their CPD claims. We are looking at the link between the two of them. And finally, we're looking that it illustrates um, the referee report illustrates the, the applicant's abilities, knowledge, experience and personal qualities. So it is the final key point and it is um, important that you have confidence that the referee is uh, aware of how you work, where you work, what you've done. Important for you to have that um, discussion with them they may well want to look at your application and we encourage that as well too so they can ref have a good understanding and have a chat to them about the core competencies and how you feel you meet them. So it, again, it's, a, it's the final piece of the puzzle and it's a good time to, you know, put things together and, and sell yourself so that the referee is, um, a, a, has a good overview of where you're coming from. Liz and Rachel, thank you very much for your time. It's been really great to catch up with you both today. And I'm sure that this podcast has also helped provide a better understanding of the credentialing process and what the assessors are looking for in, in, in your applications. Thank you to those of you out there listening to this podcast today for taking the time. And to obtain CPD credit for this podcast, please go to the ADA Learning Management System at learning.adea.com.au and complete a feedback evaluation. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. Thank you.